Welcome to the Asia Unbound podcast. I'm Liz Economy, and I'm delighted to welcome Alyssa Ayers, who is Senior Fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia, and the author of a terrific new book on the rise of India, Our Time Has Come, How India is Making Its Place in the World. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you, Liz. It's great to be up here in New York and happy to join your podcast. So at first glance, your title seems to be proclaiming that India has arrived, right? Our time has come. But on second look, it's a little bit more subtle. And your subtitle, How India is Making Its Place in the World, suggests that there's still a ways to go, that this is still a process. And of course, India has always been on the cusp somehow. You know, as we've talked about India over the past decade or more, India is just about to arrive. What's new now? What has changed? Where is India in terms of its place on the global stage? That's right. Well, I'm I'm glad you noticed that about the title. The title is a quote, I should note. It's it's not me speaking. It's uh, a quote that I found particularly revealing because it really tells you something about how some in India view their country's trajectory on the world stage. This is a quote from the current Prime Minister, Prime Minister Narendra Modi. It is also a quote from eight years ago from the previous Prime Minister, uh, Dr. Manmohan Singh. And it is also a quote from a highly watched, highly viewed television anchor. So I felt like having heard this uh, several times, there was something to that phrase, our time has come. It's about trying to find that re-emerging space on the world stage, the recognition as a major global power that many in India believe is long overdue. You raise this question about India having been on the cusp for some time, and I think we did see, you know, from the onset of economic reforms in in the mid-2000s, there was really a sudden new interest in India, and I, I kind of detail that, particularly in the business community, after the BRICS report came out. There was a lot of focus on India's potential, and I think that, it, as with many countries, but so often the case in India, things kind of move ahead, and then maybe there's some steps backward, and then they move ahead, and the kind of bumpiness of India's reform trajectory and the challenges that it has faced at home, I think, have led many businesses to feel that India hasn't been necessarily the market that they hoped for, but could be in the future. Um, I think it's that sort of sentiment. What I think is particularly new and different about this moment now in our current history as we are looking out on the future is that you really suddenly see India entering a phase where it is now one of the major global economic heavyweights. You could not have said that 15 years ago. You could have said it has the potential to become one. India has been, for the last three years, the world's seventh largest economy at market exchange rates. study came out in December from a UK think tank saying that really in 2018 it looks as if India is on track to overtake the economies of the UK and France. And that will place India as number five. All of a sudden, who are the top five country, you know, national economies in the world? It's the United States, it's China, it's Japan, it's Germany, and it's India. That's a different kind of a picture. So that is, is what I think is, is pushing India towards this kind of moment of more than just being on the cusp to being in a place where it really is able to now exert itself on the world stage in a different way than it's been able to in the past. Okay, so taking that new economic power, right, the fact that India has become and is becoming even more so an economic heavyweight, what is it that it wants to do with that newfound economic power? How do you expect that the Modi government or the government that, that comes after it will seek to use that economic power? 
So th this is where you still see some ambivalence in some contexts in India. Uh, I think you see an India that is not entirely certain how it wants to use its power in all cases. But let me outline one fairly important difference that you have seen in recent years. This government came to power and within about a year started talking about itself using a new term that frankly I've never heard this term anywhere before so I would like to say that they have created this term the term leading power so the foreign secretary has given a number of very thoughtful speeches talking about India's role as a leading power and saying you know in the past we've been sort of defensive we've been a balancing power isn't it time for us to start looking to actively shape global events we can be a leading power in that process so I think that gets at it this is a pathway it's a trajectory maybe India is not at the moment ready to lead every kind of major question on every major conflict in the world, but you see India standing up and taking leadership in ways that weren't the case. Take climate change, take what happened uh, at the Paris Conference of Parties in 2015. I think many people, I certainly know many Americans who had been involved in the ongoing negotiations expected India to be a break on the process, a spoiler for example, and that is not what happened. India came to the talks and said, you know what, not only here is our plan, our domestic plan of deploying enormous renewable energy sources, solar and wind, plus along with the president of France at the time, they created this new multilateral institution called the International Solar Alliance, which is going to have its first summit shortly and is headquartered in India. So that's just one example where you see something quite new and different taking place. Whereas before, as you know so well, the conversation on climate in the multilateral space had really been focused on ensuring that Western developed countries didn't ask India to make too many concessions before it was able to develop its economy to a similar place. And do you think that that particular moment is reflective of this particular government? And we just have Prime Minister Modi at Davos, you know, also stepping onto the global stage in a, in a fairly significant way. Now, India had already sent a pretty significant delegation to Davos a number of years ago, but I think this was really a special moment. What does that tell us? You know, his speech at Davos, his, his presence there, you know, what does that reflect? So I'm glad you asked that. It just happened yesterday, and I think it also illustrated exactly the phenomenon I, I have been trying to highlight in this book, where you see India ready to lay claim to a different kind of space globally. You're absolutely right, India has taken large delegations to Davos before, so that in and of itself is not new. They, in 2006, most famously, actually, I write about this a little bit in the book, because it was a really important moment, actually. The government of India partnered with the, an Indian business association and created something a public-private partnership, and they had a whole campaign at Davos. They had more than 100 people in the delegation, and they gave out gift bags to all the attendees, iPods that had Indian music, and served kebabs, and you know, it was really a, one of the uh, strategic planners of this, in fact, is a, a very senior executive, quite well-known in India, Nandan Nilkani, and he told me that the whole idea behind this campaign was for everybody who came to the World Economic Forum that year to sort of encounter an aspect of India in every facet of their attendance in the program. India everywhere. That was the theme. I have to say I was there you were, uh, for I that Davos. Somehow I missed the iPods with Indian oh, music, really? <laughs> but I remember the big party that they hosted and it was spectacular. Very lively and colorful and great food. And what was striking at the time was that a lot of people were saying, you know, where's China? 
Really? You know, because India had really stepped out ahead of China at that point in this, you know, global forum. Yeah. And and so it was an interesting moment. And it, they, did a, they did a terrific job, it's I have to say. 12 years later, it still made a deep impression on you. <laughs> it did. <laughs> well, what you saw just yesterday, I think, takes that focus and amps it up a notch. I, I think it's kind of the same direction pressing the accelerator pedal. So when you have your head of government lead the delegation, it's just different from when you've got a delegation led by senior ministers. And I, I do think that this was modeled on the big splash that Xi Jinping made last year. Yes. Uh, and I think that, that Prime Minister Modi's speech also hit some of the same themes. Now, what to me was most interesting about his speech, he hit many of these themes about India is a country of unity and diversity, and the world is one family. This is a favored foreign policy theme. He used that world is a family, one family concept to talk about globalization and breaking down barriers and not having walls go up among nations. Interesting. Uh, what I also found very interesting was the emphasis on democracy and diversity and what India stands for. It's also the case as Many commentators in India will note that India does not always have a harmonious democracy. I think this is well known. But what, what I took away from that speech was this is India's prime minister saying, hey, here's how we're different from China. We are going to lay claim to defending the liberal international order. We're going to lay claim to not being protectionist. Of course, many trade specialists would say, well, we've got some <laughs> yes. other questions there. Yes. There's a very good piece in the New York Times today by Keith Bradshaw on that front. But, but the democracy piece was India saying, here's what's special about us and what distinguishes us from other countries that don't have this unity and diversity, and that's our strength. Good. I want to come back to this issue of India, democracy, and soft power that you talk a little bit about in your book as well. But what about the sort of theories that govern India's foreign policy? I mean, you look back in history, and, you know, India was always, you know, one of the leading uh, forces in the non-aligned movement. Right. And you have, you know, a pretty deeply rooted sense of, you know, not intervening in, in the affairs Absolutely. of other countries. Are those things still driving forces in India's foreign policy today, or are things shifting? The answer is yes, and also a little bit no. So things are shifting. On the non-intervention front, that's a really important piece. So let me come back to that. There has been a slow process of change in the way Indian foreign policy theorizes the way it should interpret the world around it and how it should act in the world around it. We no longer have the Cold War blocks, but during the period of the Cold War, for India, it was both important not to be part of any bloc and to, to be locked into any alliance obligations, although many Americans, myself included, would note that India had a very, very strong relationship with Russia and a treaty of friendship and cooperation. Um, yet at the same time, it really did uphold this idea that it, it, it should not have constraints upon its choices in foreign policy, and being non-aligned gave it that freedom of choice. When the Cold War ended, India maintained a commitment to the non-aligned movement. The previous Indian government talked a lot, not so much about non-alignment, but a concept of strategic autonomy. That was the concept that they used to talk about their own sense of what was important for India and Indian foreign policy. And strategic autonomy was about ensuring that obligations never constrained India from being able to make its own choices in any sphere. So that, on the one hand, provides a freedom of action. On the other hand, for, for many other countries in the world, alliance relationships have helped provide a, a pathway to freedom for themselves. 
So whether it's you know relying on a defense tree to defend in times of crisis, you know this has not been the way India has interpreted alliances. Those have been interpreted more as a burden rather than a an enabling um, kind of relationship. What is interesting about the new Indian government is that they don't talk about strategic autonomy. They talk about this phrase that the Prime Minister used in his Davos speech yesterday, this world is one family concept. And so what you see happening with India's many relationships, India is no longer uh, afraid of having a close relationship with the United States. It is not as if they're signing up for some close relationship with a, with a block, a, you know, one of the Cold War blocks. So there's a very strong and growing U.S.-India relationship. But India also is deepening its relationships with many, many countries around the world. So it has strategic partnerships with a number, probably close to, at some point, more than 30, I think, at this point, uh, around the world. So it has what some have termed, our colleague Bob Blackwell has called this multi-alignment, where India is deepening its relationships with all the major powers as it looks to develop uh, its own, uh, its domestic economy and its own power. that's a little bit different from the non-aligned movement, but at the same time, a multi-alignment is not making choices. So it's, so sh- it's different, but yeah. So India can be both a member, an observer, and soon to be, I guess, a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization yes, on the inducted. one hand. They right? Oh, they've been inducted, yep. okay, uh, which is sort of, yeah. you know, controlled by China and, and Russia, and at the same time seems to be joining up to the Quad, right? The Japan, Australia, United States, India sort right. of relationship. Is there any contradiction in there, or is that just that that sort of strategic autonomy or whatever it is, yeah. that, that how, how do we multi-alignment? This? Yeah, it's interesting, I, and I write a little bit about this in the book. So India is not a revisionist power. India is not looking to overturn the institutions that have shaped the way international affairs function. India's bid is different. India would like those institutions to reform to accommodate it, uh, <laughs> the, the new place that it should occupy in the world stage. And I'm very sympathetic to that argument. It's pretty hard to see why India doesn't have a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. It's mm-hmm. very hard to justify. Uh, and yet it does not, for arcane historic reasons. And so, China. It, well, <laughs> let's yeah, not exactly. let, let's be honest here. You know, it, you know, the world's largest democracy, one of the world's largest economies at this point, one of the world's largest militaries, and yet they don't have that seat. So, you know, I understand that Security Council reform is terribly complex and diff, you know, will take years to realize. But that aside, uh, you can see why that is a source of continued bewilderment for many, because I think if you're gonna design a Security Council today, it wouldn't look the way it does now. Right. Um, so on the one hand, India's, you know, and you could make the same argument about the international financial institutions, World Bank, IMF, there's been some reform that provides greater weight to emerging economies. But the Indian perspective on this is that it hasn't been enough. They'd prefer to see that weight be calculated more on a purchasing power parity basis to mm. better reflect what they see as their their uh, more appropriate weight on the global economic stage. And we can name numbers of institutions, you know, APEC, the OECD, which helps coordinate what countries do in terms of development assistance. India's emerged as a major development partner to all kinds of countries, including in its own region, but also in Africa and including in Southeast Asia. So there's a real rationale there for reform. India would like to see these institutions reformed, but it is not 
turning its back on finding its voice through other vehicles. So it is partnered with China in the AIB. India is the number two capital contributor to that new institution. The rapidity with which the BRICS as an institution emerged and has been set up. I mean, this was this was kind of a thought bubble, the BRICS, right? right. In the mid-2000s. And this has become a fully functioning institution. And they have a whole roster of meetings. Uh, you know, it's actually quite expensive to do all this diplomacy, right? We've got annual summits of your commerce ministers and your tourism ministers and your finance and your your uh, foreign ministers and your labor ministers and you name it. And they've got different kinds of get. They've got a youth gathering. I mean, this this really is a very active form at this point. The BRICS decided that they didn't like the non-movement on World Bank IMF reform, uh, which, as you know didn't move for, right. again, arcane U.S. Congress reasons. Um, so they said they, they had a meeting in 2012 at their summit that took place in India that year, and they hatched an idea of creating their own bank. That went from idea at a summit in 2012 to writing its first development loans in Brazil in 2016. It took four years. So you do see... And India, that's the new development that's bank. That's the BRICS new right. development bank, exactly, headquartered in Shanghai. Its president is an Indian citizen, a senior banker from India. So you look at this and you see a kind of, you could call it a hedging or creating other sorts of opportunities for India to make use of multilateral coordination where it can play a larger role and has that voice. But it is not turning its back on the 20th century institutions. It would just like to see them reform. So let's talk for a minute about China. Um, you know, first comparisons with China are inevitable. Right. Um, but beyond that, how does India look at China today? I mean, you've mentioned that they are partnering with them, uh, whether it's in the AIB or in BRICS. But at the same time, I think it has not been particularly welcoming of the Belt and Road Initiative, right? China's One Belt, One Road, and seems to have a little bit of a competitive spirit there. So how, how do you understand that relationship? Yeah, I, I feel like that relationship has two parallel tracks. In, in some of the same ways that the U.S.-China relationship it has some tracks of cooperation and other tracks of competition. What has happened for India with its relationship with China for years, you know, seeing seeing themselves as potentially rising major Asian countries that should have a different role on the world stage, that has been disrupted by the strategic competition between them. Of course, they fought a border war in 1962, which surprised India, surprised the prime minister at that time, Nehru. It was a huge disappointment for him. And there is an active dispute on that border in between India and China. If you, yep. you know, every year there are a number of, of incursions. Uh, last summer, actually, we saw a something a little bit different, a quite substantial standoff between the Indian and Chinese armies on a high mountain area. Um, that actually wasn't part of Indian territory. It was actually territory that's disputed between Bhutan, a very small country, and China. And in India sent in its army to defend Bhutan on that front, to defend the status quo of that territory. So you see, you see the territorial issues. That's a huge concern. Uh, India has a, a major concern with what they see happening with the uh, quite dramatic growth of China's economic investment development presence with all the countries of the South Asian region. You see India in response. India has developed its own policy of seeking primacy in the Indian Ocean. 
India has recently uh, declared it's you know going to be setting up its first overseas military base. It's never done that before in the Seychelles, right in the middle of the Indian Ocean. As you know, China now has a base in Djibouti. Right. Logistics base, Logistics. right. You're right, exactly. But India has seen what's been happening with the Sri Lanka-China relationship. There's a new government in Sri Lanka now. India has repaired its relationship with Sri Lanka. Uh, but these have just raised a lot of questions for it. And of course, there's the, the long-standing relationship of China with Pakistan, which has always been something of a hedge for both China and Pakistan to India. So, you know, it's got a, a very active economic relationship with China, although India is not happy with the <laughs> trade balance right. and the composition <laughs> of the trade. We hear that a lot on this side, too, with the United States. So it's got these economic interests, but at the same time, it also has some pretty significant security concerns. So they partner at times on global governance issues on the world stage, but on the bilateral basis, there's kind of two parallel tracks of concern, even as some of the economic cooperation goes on. Yeah, India seems also to be reaching out and and partnering in fairly significant ways with Japan. Yes, uh, yes. Maybe Australia as well. So Absolutely. new relationships are not new, I guess, but strengthening those relationships as well. The Japan-India relationship is really important. You know, that relationship is termed a special strategic and global partnership. Hmm. The U.S.-India relationship is called a strategic partnership. So it's almost as if it's the relationship with Japan it's, it has a high better. level. It was bumped up in 2014. I think this was first declared in 2006. It was declared a, a strategic and global partnership. And then in 2014, special. they called it special on top of that nomenclature. So, Are um, we seeking a special relationship <laughs> as well with India should, should or we not? The name? <laughs> I just find it interesting. I mean, what does this signal? So signals that both see their relationship with each other as somehow providing both something important globally. And it's not limited to their bilateral relationship, but rather it also is focused on the global set of issues. Japan has been a very important development partner for India, an important um, investment partner as well. In fact, if you look at the rise of India's auto industry, which is a kind of case study I look at in, in the book, it's it's of India's important case of manufacturing success, but the Japanese were very important to that. It was Suzuki that first came into India at the invitation of former Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi and helped set up what is still kind of the best-selling Indian brand, a, a joint venture called Maruti Suzuki. So there's a very important piece there, but they're also close partners on the global governance front. They're part of the G4 grouping of countries, India, Japan, Germany, and Brazil, that together seek UN Security Council reform it's hard to argue against that. Japan's the number two donor. Why don't they have a permanent seat there? And so, so that relationship is very important. Japan also is now partnering with India on developing something called an Africa-Asia Growth Corridor that is, in a sense, a response to the Belt and Road. And so that will be trying to create a new transit connectivity link from East Africa across the Indian Ocean and into Southeast Asia. Yeah. So I said earlier that I wanted to come back to the issue of the democracy and India's soft power. And you know, one of the things that we saw Chinese President Xi Jinping raise in his speech in October at the 19th Party Congress was the idea that China could, if not be a model of development for many other countries, could provide advice, could share the Chinese way. Does India have aspirations for that kind of influence? Does it see itself playing that role, for example, uh, with regard to countries, some countries in Africa where India has long been involved? 
The, the Indian way is different than the Chinese way, and that is readily apparent when you see the way they handle their development partnerships. Uh, for one thing, India doesn't talk about development assistance. They don't talk about donors and recipients and aid. They talk about development partnerships. So they really see what they do to support development in other countries as, as a partnership. They also, and this goes back to some of what we talked about, about the, the legacy of non-alignment and the non-interference and the question of sovereignty and how important that is on domestic developments that take place you know, within the confines of national boundaries. India is happy to provide advice on things like democracy, if asked by another country, but is not going to stand up most of the time, and there's some important exceptions, but will not stand up in the way that we like to do. It's part of our DNA in you know, providing critiques where we see flaws. India just doesn't do that. It prefers private diplomacy, assistance, advice, if asked. It's been very interesting to see, in fact, the growth of India's technical assistance program within the election commission. I mean, if you think about it, there's no other country in the world that does the mechanics of democracy the way India does. And India's election commission has created a new institution called the Indian International Institute of Democracy and Election Management. And it's got a new building that they've been setting up that has auditoriums and different meeting facilities, a hostel. The whole idea is you can bring in election monitors or officials from other countries and provide a sort of in-depth training on the way India conducts the the world's largest Mm. elections and many of the world's medium size and almost medium size. I mean, a small election in India is like the size of a European country. So it's hard to, yeah, to describe this. Right? Right. A small election right. is still 20 million people. So uh, be, for India to be able to do this kind of capacity building and training, I think is a really important step. But I do think it's really important to note that they're not, they're not proselytizers. They don't see that as the appropriate international role for a country. They support democracy initiatives globally. Um, part of the founding of the community of democracies the number two donor to the UN Democracy Fund. So they they are very supportive of these types of institutions. But you're never going to see a statement from the Indian External Affairs Ministry that, you know, calls out countries for major flaws. You just won't see that. There's a big exception to that. Okay. The big exception is in the region. Mm -hmm. The big exception is with neighbors. And India has been more vocal about problems in its neighbors where it feels that there's a direct impact on its own security interests. You saw that with India's relationship with Nepal. India did not welcome Nepal's completion of its constitution. This, in fact, led to a standoff, what the Nepalese called a blockade, where trucks could not enter Nepal. India says this was not a blockade, but the trucks drivers were afraid to. There was a lot of protests, I mean, sort of street protests for months. In any case, I think this was an example where, where you've seen India willing to say, you have a problem and we suggest you do something else. But again, these examples are really only in the region. You don't see it kind of uh, extra regionally. Right. So where it feels its interests are very directly affected. Right. right. <laughs> okay. So yeah, one last question. I think you, you do a very nice job at the end of the book of about you know talking about the U.S. and India relationship and what the United States ought to do. You have advised senior members of, of administration. Certainly you were part of the previous administration and I know have advised some of the members of this administration as well. What are sort of the one or two most important things uh, that you think the United States ought to be doing differently in its relationship with India? 
let me give you one conceptual bit and then two priorities. Conceptually, and, and I've, I've made this argument, this came out of our work with the CFR-sponsored independent task force that uh, convened in 2015. It's really important, given, given the way India sees itself and its own global role and what it seeks from its relationship with the United States, that we not expect that this is going to evolve as our relationship grows closer and closer into an alliance. They are just not seeking that. And I hear this kind of slippage a lot and it, that creates expectations that are just never going to be met. So what we recommended in the task force, and I included that recommendation in this book as well, is that we ought to really kind of reformulate what we're thinking about as more of a joint venture relationship where we've got some areas of strong cooperation, um, but the areas where we may not see eye to eye at times should not come in the way of our strong cooperation. So that's the kind of conceptual issue. I have lots of priorities, um, but if, if you want, just two. Just two. Uh, so uh, I would say that we should really step up on this global go governance reform issue because that's where we can be really helpful to India. That is where the U.S. role in being a, a kind of uh, founder and champion and steward of the liberal international order, that's where we can really make a difference. How can we be more active in pushing these institutions to reform to accommodate a rising India that in, in, in some contexts, in the economic context, it has risen. I mean, this, this is now not on the cusp when we're talking economically. There is no justification anymore for India being on the outside of APEC. Uh, it just is hard for me to understand. I've sadly been making this argument for a number of years. Yes, you have. And not been <laughs> successful so far in convincing people that it is worth making that change. But it really does raise the question, what does India need to prove to be admitted to APEC? Did anybody seek reforms from Russia when it was? I mean, come on, you know? It's just hard to, to understand that. Um, the third priority, I would say, and, and this is an area that's going very, very well, with India already is keep what we're doing and keep growing closer together on the strategic and defense front. That is an area that has been very successful over the past, now the third presidential administration in the United States, and it looks poised for continued growth as both India and the United States continue slowly finding ways to work together, mill to mill, uh, and continue expanding the areas that we consult with each other on and think about the type of world we would like to shape. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. It really is just an excellent, excellent book and really pleased you were able to be here. Thank you. I love coming to visit you. What a nice <laughs> endorsement. Thank you. <laughs>